the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or church questions or life questions, whatever's going on. We'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. Uh, Here are our phone numbers, 340-9585. 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, especially if there's still some wet streets out there, be very, very careful. Uh, But you can use the free KSLR mobile app. And in the process, uh, just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, because it's Wednesday, ladies, you know that tomorrow is Paula's show, date day edition. Paula will be here tomorrow if you have any questions or need any encouragement. Uh, and then also tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we have our midweek Old Testament Bible study. Tonight is one of the more important studies um, that I'm going to do. It's, it's um, so for us in New Testament times, uh, really a wonderful study on how to get your prayers answered tonight from Second Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be finishing the chapter. Uh, what happens when God says no and how should we respond? So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. One more reminder and then we'll get to some questions. Uh, we do have our Easter services coming up this coming Sunday. We will be having two services at 8.30 and 10.45 at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. It's a great venue for us. Um, Lots and lots of room. Uh, We invite you uh, to come. um, Bring unsaved friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors. Uh, People get saved at our Easter services, and this year will be no different. So um, you'll meet some of the greatest people in the whole world. So that's coming up on Wednesday. Uh, tonight and on Sunday, uh, wherever you're going to church on Sunday, if it's not going to be with us, um, what a great day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. One more time, three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is our first question. It comes from our mobile app from Rich. Um, who is the elect lady that John? Uh, I'm sorry, that Second John is addressed to. Uh, Rich, uh, people have been arguing for centuries about the identity of this chosen lady. Uh, the elect ladies with the King James and New King James says, the chosen lady and her children, uh, whom I love in the truth, and I not only, but also all who know the truth. Um, it's just something that we can't know for sure. Uh, some people insist that John is referring to the church in general. That's the chosen lady in a feminine form. However, for John to refer to the church in the feminine in the feminine form would be really unusual because it would be in contrast to his previous letters. Uh, one of the things that support this view 
is the addition of the term chosen, which would indicate to some that John was referring to her election as a people of God, predestination according to foreknowledge. Now, while that might be true, Rich, if it's so, the sentence construction here would be a very awkward way to make the point uh, and especially awkward for John. So personally, I think it is improbable uh, that John's referring to the church. Uh, much more likely, and this is my personal view, remember there's nobody who has an answer to this, but my personal view is that John is addressing one particular woman in this epistle. The only difficulty with this is the absence of the definite article in Greek, um, which would then demand that she be thought of in a singular uh, but there's a lot of precedent for one person being spoken of in the absence of a definite article. I personally believe he was writing to a woman, most likely in response to some questions that she had posed uh, to John uh, earlier in writing. Now, that would beg the question, why didn't John identify her? Let me suggest three possible reasons. Again, even though the truth can't be known for sure. Uh, the first reason is not I, I, identifying her could have been dangerous for her. To be marked out as a follower of Jesus in the ancient world could mark this woman as a target for the enemies of Christ. That's probably the, the most practical reason. Uh, the second reason he may not have identified her is because she knows who she is. If I'm right and the letter was a response to her letter, there'd be no need to call her by name. You know, I send a lot of emails to people that don't name the person I'm responding to because they wrote me and they know that I'm addressing them, and that would be just something that would make a lot of sense. Third, and this is what I prefer, and it's very simple, we need to remember that John was writing only as the Holy Spirit led him to. All Scripture, Paul says in writing to Timothy, is God-breathed. It's God pushing the pins of men. That would mean God didn't want her identified. Because once this letter was taken into the canon of Scripture, I believe, personally, Rich, that there was a purpose in her not being identified uh, as it relates to us. Because I believe we're all the chosen lady in this particular case. So I think that's who and that's why. Um, that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. Um, but there are a lot of people who disagree. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from our email inbox. This one is from Nacho. Uh, Pastor Ron, when Jesus cursed the fig tree in Matthew twenty one nineteen, the words he used, does that mean that Israel will not or cannot be fruitful until the millennial kingdom? What would fruitful look like? Is this a spiritual fruit, fruit, fruitfulness? Could this be why Christianity's church is more dominant than Judaism? Um, not sure. I don't think it has anything to do with, with uh, the church being more dominant than Judaism in the world. We know that the devil has always hated Israel. He's always hated Jews. And uh, life for Israel has always, from the very beginning, been really, really tough. Now, we know uh, the fig tree, and I talked about this in my message on uh, this past Sunday, Palm Sunday. Um, the fig tree is a biblical symbol for Israel. And when he cursed it, I contend that he was giving a sermon illustration to his disciples. Remember the day before he had been um, coming through uh, the streets of Jerusalem in a triumphal entry being proclaimed as the Messiah? Jesus had convinced his disciples he was going there to die, and at least for a moment, it would look to his disciples like, well, the whole world is going after him, and they're happy that he's here, and he's going to be the king. And, and it would spur them to ask the questions yet again, is it now, at this time, you're going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus always shut down that kind of talk. But what Jesus wanted them to do with the cursing of the fig tree is he wanted them to see what Israel had done to itself by virtue of rejecting Jesus. So by cursing the fig tree, remember he went up, he was hungry, he was looking for a fig, and there was nothing in there. And it was like this was just one more trick that was played on Jesus. You know, the day before, all the people shouting Hosanna, but a week later, less than a week later, they'd be shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Um, he came when he was supposed to, the way he was supposed to. They expected him on that day, but they didn't want him to be the Christ, the Messiah. They'd heard what he'd been teaching. They heard that 
He said to love your enemies. They didn't want their enemies to be loved. They wanted their enemies to be defeated. That he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the kind of animal that kings in the ancient world rode during times of peace. They wanted their king on a horse ready to make war to set them free from Rome. Jesus said it was just phony. He looked at the temple that same afternoon. He walked through it and he saw that it had been turned into a house of thieves. Again, it was supposed to be a house of prayer, his father's house. So it wasn't what it was supposed to be. But look at the religious leaders who were at that very moment plotting his murder. And while they looked like they were representing God, they were in fact misrepresenting God. They were enemies of God. And Jesus said, this is just too much. And when he was hungry, he wanted a fig. He would dig into the leaves, finding nothing. And it would be almost like we would say in English, the straw that broke the camel's back. And he cursed the fig tree. And I believe with all of my heart, Nacho, that he was simply saying to his disciples, this is what's happened to Israel. Now, relative to... Um, Jesus saying that it would be barren. Yes, he was saying that Israel will be barren until the millennial kingdom. But then, of course, we know that after the great tribulation, when Jesus returns, he's going to establish his kingdom again on the throne of David. And he will be the potentate, the, the loving, benevolent potentate of Israel. And Israel will be uh, in fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob even to David. So what would fruitful look like? Well, fruitful would look in the millennial kingdom, Jews coming home to their Jesus. Jews filled with the Spirit of God. Jews filled with a joy that Israel hasn't seen. So it's not only a spiritual fruitfulness, but it's also a practical fruitfulness. Not sure when I taught this this past Sunday, we don't have to guess. I told our church what the fruit that Jesus is looking for in our lives is. And I challenged our church here at Calvary Chapel to let God sort of dig his hand into the leaves of their life. Check out the fruit. What kind of fruit is he looking for? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. I always add faithfulness and self-control. Why? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the only thing Jesus has ever been looking for. So, Nacho, good question. Thank you very, very much. I hope that answers your question for you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Sam. How is it still possible to believe in the biblical account of creation that Adam and Eve were the father and the mother of all humans. Uh, Sam, it's easy to still believe. Now, I'm suggesting or, or I'm, I'm thinking here that you're saying, well, with all that science has proven and with evolution or the Big Bang Theory, whatever theory that you subscribe to, that it takes a small mind to believe what maybe you're relegating to the children's story of Adam and Eve. But see, here's the thing, Sam. If you don't believe in Adam and Eve, then what we believe as Christians is gone. It's lost. If Adam and Eve weren't the first two humans, Adam created by God in a perfect garden, Eve created from Adam to walk in the cool of the garden together with Adam and Eve, then there's just no possibility that there's universal sin or universal redemption if they weren't not the father and the mother of all human beings, two real people, if that's not the way the human race began, then every major doctrine of our Christian faith falls apart. You know who verified that? none other than Jesus himself. Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
that's speaking specifically Matthew chapter 19 of Adam and Eve so Sam I don't know if you're a professing Christian who's just chosen not to believe in the biblical account of creation but one of the things that you've got to do is you've got to justify calling Jesus a liar because if Jesus didn't say that then we can't trust our Bibles and if we can't trust our Bibles as I've said many times on this program we don't have the word of God very, very important. Jesus believed it. You know, I had somebody once tell me that there was no real prophet named Daniel. This was somebody who was sort of a, a, a liberal Christian. By that I mean one who didn't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And, you know, you can read Daniel and the prophecies were so specific. It wasn't really written by Daniel. There was no such person. It was written afterwards by somebody else to encourage uh, the, the Jews in a hard time. The same thing is true with Isaiah. You can go to some of the higher critics and, and they've got uh, first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah written by different people throughout different times. But Jesus identified both of them. I don't have to wonder whether or not Daniel was real because Jesus spoke specifically about that which was spoken by the prophet Daniel and quoted what we have in his book. So you've got to decide, Sam, would you believe Jesus or you believe scientists that don't want anything to do with God? And by the way, they always start with the premise that since there is no God, they've got to come up with an alternate theory. That's not honest scholarship. So the truth of the matter is, yes, they were the first ones. That's the way the human race started. And to believe anything else is to really look at Jesus and say, I don't believe you. hope that makes sense to you. Danny wants to know, is annihilationism a viable theory for when we die? Uh, Danny, there's another case. All you have to do is know your Bible. Um, annihilationism is the the um, the theory that that when humans die they just cease to exist that God is a God of love and well people reject him and they have the choice the free will to do that but he's so loving that he couldn't possibly cause them to go to torment for eternity so it's not that they don't get punished they die they cease to exist but that's really not any punishment at all it's also something, a theory that flies in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture. We are all created in the image of God. That means two things. It means that we have the will to choose just as God chose. He chose us. We have the free will to choose Him. But more important than even that is that we're made in the image of God it means that we're going to live somewhere forever. The moment we draw first breath, the moment we're conceived in our mother's womb, we enter into eternity. We're going to spend eternity somewhere. And life is when we have to make that choice. We make that choice to be with Jesus, we call that heaven, or to be separated from Jesus, we call that hell. But we have to make the choice and we are alive. Very, very clearly, we are alive. So, Danny, it is not a viable theory. Um, you know, it makes us feel good that maybe God wouldn't punish people for hell, but punishment is what we choose when we reject Jesus. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says that we're all born into sin. We're condemned the moment we come out of our mother's womb. We are born condemned. And Jesus intervenes and offers us a way not to be. He offers us eternal life. If we don't accept his offer. Well, that's not God sending us to an eternal torment. That's us choosing eternal torment. Now, we don't put it in those terms because we like to think that we're more discerning than that, that we like to think that, well, of course, I'm a good person, all those kind of fallacious arguments. But the truth is that we're either going to be with Jesus in heaven or we're going to be separated from him in hell, and it starts the moment we leave the tent of this body. I hope that answers your question. 
340-9585. Nancy wants to know what kind of things can the devil make us do? Nancy, the devil cannot make us do anything. You know, I think one of the problems with especially American Christianity is we like to blame stuff on the devil. I got a spirit of lust or a spirit of pride or I mean that's who we are. The devil can tempt us. He can plant thoughts in our brain. But as a Christian, Nancy, he cannot make you do anything. And he understands that, so he's trying to make you choose to do what he wants you to do. That's why temptation looks so good. That's why leaving our husband or our wife looks so good. Uh, maybe I'll get a better one the next time around. It's why um, smoking marijuana or drinking too much it feels so good or sounds so good to us because when we're about to be overwhelmed with things, we just need to take the edge off. Well, the devil can't make you do those things, but he can sure tempt you to do those things. And if we understand that, then we're in a place where there's nothing at all we understand that he can make us do. He wants to destroy us, but he can't do it without our help, without our partnership. So remember, he can plant thoughts, ugly thoughts. He can tempt you. He knows every button to push. But he can't make you do anything because greater is he who lives in us than he who lives in the world. So thank you for asking, Nancy. Uh, here's a good question from Edward. He says, as a new Christian, how should I react to my old friends? Do I have to give them up? Edward, you don't have to do anything. But here's the thing. As a new Christian, you've got to look back honestly and say, yeah, they're my friends. I care for them. But what good did they do for me? What value were they in my life? Did they lead me to Jesus or did they take me away from Jesus? And that's the decision that we all have to make every day. You know, I've got a theory, Edward, that as a new believer, I'm sure grateful for what God has done, excited that you're going to go to heaven, excited to see what the new life Jesus has for you is all about. I imagine if you took talk to your old friends and you tell them about your relationship with Jesus, you tell them what happened to you, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to get saved or they're going to ditch you. Edward, you're not fun like you used to be. Edward, you used to be the life of the party. Edward, you never used to talk about this religious stuff. Well, see, they're making their own choice. But if you choose to keep them in your lives, protect yourself. Paul says that bad company corrupts good character. Be honest enough to analyze the things that they're tempting you to get involved in. And be honest enough to look at them and say, are they really your friends if they don't want anything to do with your Jesus? When you talk about Jesus, how do they respond? Sometimes, Edward, we get to a place where to be with our old friends, we've got to exclude Jesus. They make that very clear. Man, you're my friend, but I don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. Well, as a new believer, how can you stop talking about Jesus? He's there with you. If you're really their friends, you want them in heaven. So you got to tell them. If they boot you out of their friendship circle, uh, it's okay. you got a friend like you've never had before. Jesus called you his friend. So be really, really, really careful about those old friends. Share Jesus with them. But don't go out drinking with them. Don't go out partying with them. Why? Because you're a new man. The old Edward is dead. A new Edward has been born again. And your friends, your real friends, would be happy that you found the reason you were born, the very thing you were created for. They don't want to hear about your Jesus anymore. How good a friend are they? got two minutes left. Let me, here's a question uh, from Edward. I don't think it's the same Edward. They came in on different days. Edward says, I think I heard you say that Job was the oldest book in the Old Testament. How could Job come before Genesis? Uh, well, the, the, the reason Job could come before 
Genesis uh, in terms of its being written, not historically, of course. Um, Genesis is the beginning. But the evidence scripturally in Job strongly suggests, Edward, that it was written before the Mosaic Law was given to Moses. And if that's so, Job would have had to been written before the first five books. There seems to me to be ample evidence that Job is the oldest book that we have a record of, the oldest in terms of when it was written. It goes back to the time um, um, before um, some of the Mosaic Law was written, certainly before Moses. Um, sacrifices for children's sins. Uh, just the evidence suggests that the law had not yet been given, which obviously, because Moses is the author of Genesis, uh, predates, the writing predates, not the history, but the writing predates Genesis. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the wednesday program you heard the phone numbers but i'll give it one more time 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, I should have done this at the top of the program. I told you I would yesterday, um, but I got uh, involved in one of the questions that was sent in. So let me do it now. I want to talk about day four in Jesus' Passion Week. You know, I think it helps us a lot. I mean, it really helps us a lot to sort of walk with Jesus through these last days, these last hours of his life. And as Jesus enters day four of his Passion Week, he has only two days left to live. Think about that. Every moment, every step. Now, we know that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen because Elijah and Moses appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration and told him everything that was going to happen in Jerusalem. So now he's got two days left to live. I love the fact that with the time is short, he was redeeming the time, using Paul's language. And he was at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, we know Simon wasn't really a leper. It means he would have been a healed leper. No leper would have been allowed to be around or in contact with other Jews. So, obviously, this was a man that Jesus had healed. Now, when you first get healed by Jesus, what's the first thing you do? You have a party. You invite people to your house, the people that you know. Well, that's what Simon the leper did. It was also right after that party, or at the end of it, that Mary of Bethany came in and washed his feet. He poured a very expensive bottle of perfume all over Jesus, not just a little bit, but, but from the head all the way down and used her hair to wash his feet. Jesus said, this woman has done a beautiful thing to me. She was preparing his body for a funeral, for death. She got it. She had spiritual insight. Can you imagine what that was like for Jesus to look at her as she washed his feet with her hair? Can you imagine what that was like what would be going through his mind. And then the worst possible thing, again, this is only my opinion, but the worst thing that happened to Jesus on this day, the most heartbroken thing, was this was the day that Judas, the betrayer, did his evil deed. Goes to the chief leaders of the synagogue and said, what will you give me if I hand him over to you. you see, at this point, 
Judas also understood that Jesus was really going to allow himself to die, and he didn't want that. He thought he could force Jesus' hand. Make no mistake, he knew who Jesus was. He'd seen everything that Jesus had done for three years. He'd heard every word that Jesus had taught. Judas himself had been given supernatural power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. Jesus sends his disciples out in pairs. But Judas, thinking more highly of himself than he ought to, he just figured that I can force Jesus' hand. Somehow he thought he would get away with it, and we know that's not the case. But day four, and there were other things that Jesus did, but those are the ones that really stand out to me when I'm thinking about this week in Jesus' life and how much he loved me. Well, if I think about that, it changes my week as well because it fills my heart with gratitude. As you in the audience know, because we've been soliciting your prayers, this has been a very difficult time for those of us at Calvary Chapel. One of our dear, dear ladies and is sick, fighting a very virulent cancer. We're in this battle with her, and then, of course, Nehemiah was killed a week ago Monday. We've dealt with the pain of that, and yet none of that compares to the pain that Jesus would endure in his last week, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. So I want you to think about that. Let the Lord convince you just how much he loves you. Here's a question from our mobile app, Anonymously. It says in Revelation chapter 12, uh, 10b through 11, does this mean that the enemy no longer has access to God? That he no longer accuses us before the Lord like he did in Job 1.6? Or is this speaking of a future time? Uh, Anonymous, uh, I'm going to read verse 9 and 10 um, uh, of Revelation chapter 12. So everybody in the audience has an understanding of what's going on. The great dragon, verse 9 says, was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Um, and then it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now I have come, uh, now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ, for the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God night and day has been hurled down. Um, anonymous, this is a verse that points to a time in the future. Uh, in fact, it happens in the very middle of of the Great Tribulation. Three and a half year period of time in the Great Tribulation, Satan's access to heaven is cut off and he's cast down to earth. Now, this isn't something that's already happened, which means he already, or I'm sorry, he still has access to God. He still accuses us night and day before the throne of God. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't listen to him. Every accusation is, nope, covered by the blood. I, I always marvel that I'm proclaimed innocent at the very throne of God. No, he's not only not guilty, he's innocent. Why? Because I've cleansed him. I've taken all of the punishment for his sins. So, please understand that while this is a time yet future, we still have to have confidence that when we're being accused by an enemy, we needn't listen to those accusations. So it is a time in the future, the book of Revelation, all of it is a prophecy. And for one reason or another, uh, we don't really think about it that way. Here's a question from Mark from our email inbox. I've heard it said that when Paul addresses head coverings in church, he was only talking to the church in Corinth and it doesn't apply to modern Christians. When asked how this can be, I've heard it explained that it has something to do with when Paul goes back to like Adam and Eve and uses those examples to back up his argument. It's for everyone. But if not, it's, it's just for that specific church. Well, 1 Corinthians 7, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 10, 
Paul talks about woman coming from man. Isn't that going back to creation? So wouldn't this apply to all, not just the church in Corinth? Mark, it's a great question, and I love the thoughtfulness of it. But what Paul is doing is establishing authority in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's not talking about head coverings at all. He uses head coverings that were uh, germane to the culture in Corinth as an example to make his point about submission, submitting to headship. If a man prays with his head uncovered, it's a disgrace. Well, who's over man? It's Jesus. Jesus, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, puts himself in a secondary position to God the Father. And so uh, he's under the authority. Jesus said, I always do what my Father says. I only say what I hear my Father say. So Jesus willingly, Philippians chapter 2 says, subjugated his right as God and instead took a position of subservience to his Father. He humbled himself, we're told, considering equality with God not something to be grasped. So um, in this particular case, your hermeneutic is right. And it's a very important hermeneutic, Mark, because if we don't understand that Genesis is the foundation for all things, then, then the hermeneutic loses its value. That he's just saying that a woman comes from man, that's just establishing why man was put over a uh, woman in authority in the church. Now, one thing I want to address, Mark, and this isn't what you asked, but people, this grinds our culture so deeply. There's only two places where there's male headship over a woman, and that's in a marriage, of course. Marriage, uh, a woman is to submit to her own husband, not to other men. Uh, and, and the woman is to submit to the male headship of the church. In those two places, there's no other place. If we have a woman president, that would be great. If we have uh, a woman police officer and she tells you to do something, you need to submit to her authority. But in this particular case, only in church and only in the home that belongs to God is the headship of man established. Having said that, the whole point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians is that the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. And thus we must be under submission. So this isn't about head coverings at all. That's the way we know we can identify it as a cultural issue. Only in Corinth. Now, there's one other thing going on, and I'll get through this quickly because I've already talked too long on this one. Uh, in Corinth, one of the things you have to understand is that it was a very wicked, licentious city. Um, open sexuality, uh, both hetero and homosexual um, behavior. Um, there was a, a temple uh, to Aphrodite that was um, uh, always occupied with with male and female prostitutes. Uh, you could go, and I say this with uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek, but you guys worship uh, by paying a fee. Well, the women in those temples shave their heads, which would indicate that they are now available. I'm open for hire. So when the women in Corinth who would get saved, they begin taking off their head covers, it would be like saying, I'm not under anybody's authority, I'm available. And Paul's saying, no, in the church we want to maintain decorum. There's a great book written by F.F. F. Bruce, it's called New Testament History. And it gives you a lot of the background and some of the bibliography um, of, of uh, the way the world was at the time of Jesus. So, Mark, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Don't forget the hermeneutic, though. 340-9585. Here is something that just came in from our email inbox from Melissa. Uh, I heard a caller on the show yesterday, the 27th, ask about why we need a Bible or do we really need a Bible? I just came across in my daily reading uh, this afternoon, Romans 15, uh, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Uh, and then she says this, the Bible is really the only book I read. It's extremely important to read daily. This is where I meet up with Christ. Love the show. I'm a faithful listener. Well, thank you very, very much, Melissa. I appreciate it. Uh, I just finished teaching before the Palm Sunday break that passage in Romans uh, where we're told that, that that which was written was to help us, to help us persevere, to, to help us be obedient, to teach us how to do the things. And so you're absolutely right, Melissa. The Bible is um, indispensable. It's the only book that's ever been written by God Almighty himself. Uh, and it's the only way that we know uh, what's true. It's a plumb line. You know, I can, I can hang my head on the truth of the word. I can't hang my head on the truth of the feelings. And that's what I was trying to communicate yesterday. So thank you very, very much for, for that. The one thing I would say to you, Melissa, is um, that it's, um, um, there's a lot of really good books out there. Uh, and I think it's important for Christians to be well-read. Um, you, by now, have a really, really solid foundation in the word. And you can discern what is and is not uh, edifying, what is and is not valuable. Um, but but um, we stand on the shoulders of a lot of giants who've gone before us. So read the Bible. God bless you for doing it. Um, but don't completely un- eliminate all other stuff uh, as well. Thank you very, very much for the kind thoughts. 340-9585. Here is... Uh, anonymous question. Pastor Ron, do you think God expects us to use normal human reasoning in figuring out the direction of our lives? I believe God lets us work out things like this on our own. Anonymous, you could not be more wrong. You know what God expects us to use our normal human reasoning to do? To read the Bible, to obey the Bible, to ask God what the direction of our lives is. Remember something about uh, uh, God, Anonymous. He lives outside of time and space. Um, he, he, he lives in a place where he can see the end from the beginning. And if he's the one, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, who sort of plots our path, he, he gives us a work to do and then prepares us to do that work, doesn't it make sense that we ought to consult him before we make decisions? I think, personally, Anonymous, it's arrogant to say, well, you know, I'll figure this out. God, I got this. God gave you a brain, but he gave you a brain because he wants you to use it to seek him. Now, here's a piece of evidence that I can tell you is true about you, Anonymous. I can tell you it's true about every person that I've ever met. When we rely on our own instincts, we do what seems right to us, Honestly, look back and see what the fruit of that is or has been because it's not really good. I've made so many horrible decisions doing what I thought was right and yet God was trying the whole time to get me to slow down to consult Him and when I take His counsel, then I don't make those horrible, horrible mistakes. Now, a lot of times, and I think this is really the crux of your question, a lot of times when there's something I want to do, and it sounds right to me. If I take the time to go to God, there's a really good likelihood that he's going to say no. And we don't want to hear no. We want to do what we want to do, and we expect God to bless it. That's the height of arrogance. God knows better than we do what's best for us. My Bible study two Wednesdays ago, we had a break because of Nehemiah's death, but two Wednesdays ago, in Second Samuel chapter 7, was when God says no. God said no to David. David wanted to do something that made perfect sense. David even had Nathan the prophet speaking for God, say, go ahead and do everything that's on your heart to do. And tonight we learn that David didn't get angry, he didn't pout, he didn't become a petulant child king. Instead, what he does tonight is a great example for all of us, not only of how we should respond when God says no, but far beyond even that, how to get our prayers answered, because that's the heart. So anonymous, God's not going to take away your fun. He's not going to ruin your life. When he says no, he says no, because he has something so much better for you. 
And I would like that you would use your normal human reasoning to use your terms to stop and sit at the feet of God and consult Him. It gives me an opportunity to appeal to husbands. Think about how hard it is for your wife to be told that she's to submit to your leadership as unto the Lord. Every woman I know, obviously they know their husbands and they know what terrible decisions their husbands have made. How do you submit to that? Well, the only way they can do that is to trust God, to believe in God. Husbands, because of the position God has put your wives in, your wife needs to be able to count on you being a man of prayer, a man of God's Word, a man who is a living example of Christ's likeness. And if you're those three things, your wife will have no problem submitting to your leadership because God's going to be looking out for both of you. But if you just rush headlong into doing what seems right to you or doing what you want to do without checking the Lord. Now, I'm talking about everything from changing jobs to changing churches to, to moving to a, a different state. or I mean, any decision, your wife deserves to know. She is desperate to know that when you come to her and say, this is what I think God is leading us to do, she will know that you have prayed about it. She will know that you have sought confirmation in the Word of God. And whether she wants to do it or not, as you bring her into partnership and agreement, asking her to go pray, go, go seek the Lord, because I want confirmation. Whenever you make a move, the two of you will make it together. And when you make a move together, the enemy will not be able to interfere. I hope that makes a lot of sense. You know, when Paul and I came to San Antonio, now nearly 23 years ago, We were excited, we were scared, but we had no idea how hard things were going to be. We had no idea how hard things were going to be. And the only reason we're still here 23 years later is because before we ever left California, we knew for sure. I knew it. Paula knew it. We knew it together that this is what Jesus was telling us to do. And you see, when we got here, we realized that there was no escape route, there was no um, return home, that this was our home. And I dragged Paula with a submit-to-me woman kind of approach. We wouldn't have made it. And oh, would we have missed out on everything. So I hope that answers your question. Use your brain to seek God. Here's a question from Amy. Is God God or is Jesus God? Amy, uh, you mean the Father, of course. Uh, the answer is yes. They both are God. Now Jesus submitted himself, Philippians 2 says, I talked about that to an earlier question, to the authority of God the authority of his Father, but Jesus was God. Jesus is God. I'm going to add another one in the mix. The Holy Spirit is God. So it's not like they're, one is in control of the others. It's just that they're all completely God and they have different roles. The Father who lives in unapproachable light wanted to be seen by man. So what he did was he sent his Son. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus then, as he was ready to go, returned to his Father. He sent the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will testify about me. So God, who lives in unapproachable light, wanted a representative. That representative was Jesus, a man who was God. When Jesus returned to his Father, sitting at the right hand of glory, the power hand of glory, all judgment has been given to me, Jesus said. He sent the Holy Spirit. 
to be a witness of him. Jesus said to his disciples at their worst possible moment, it's good for you that I go away. It wasn't good for them. They couldn't understand that. But Jesus said, because if I go, I'll send another me. He'll be the same as me, just different. I mean, he won't be here physically, but he'll be here with you. And he will remind you of everything that I've said. So, Amy, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And there's no competition. There's no disunity. There's no friction. It's just oneness. That's why Jesus could say, Father, I pray that they, speaking of his disciples, would be one as you and I are one. So, Amy, I hope that answers your question. It's a very important question. Uh, here's a question. we got just a little over one minute. I can do it quickly. It's from Kenneth. He says, Pastor Ron, can a Jewish person find the true God without believing in Jesus? You know, one of the frustrating things about Jews who are not um, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ is that they have the true God, but they've rejected him. So uh, a Jewish person cannot go to heaven without believing in Jesus. And the reason it's really so difficult to accept is that they know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just don't have any access to him. Because sin separates them from God. Sin separates them from access. That's why Jesus said, I've come to give you life. So I hope that answers your question. Kenneth, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, ladies, tomorrow is your show. Paula will be live in studio. Um, one more reminder, this coming Sunday, April the 1st, Judson High School Performing Arts Center, 8.30 and 10.45 services. Invite somebody you'd love to see. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock with Paul. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.